0: Hi friends, I'm music journalist Mikey Carl. From Mushroom, this is 180 Grams, Stories of the Record. This series is all about the Teskey Brothers' second album, Run Home Slow, and how it came together.
1: Hello, my name is Josh Teskey from the Teskey Brothers. I'm a songwriter, singer, and guitarist.
2: I'm Sam Teske from the Teskey Brothers, and uh, I play the guitar.
3: Hey, I'm Brendan
4: Love, and I play bass in the Teskey Brothers.
3: Yeah. My name is Liam Goff from the Teskey Brothers band. He plays the drums. And this is the story of Run Home Slow.
0: Here comes Rob, Josh and Sam's dad. And I always used to talk to the boys about a thing that I, I kind of discovered, which is called duende, and I don't know if anybody uh, knows what that means. But it's any kind of performing art, when, when an artist or show kind of captures the audience in a sort of a mesmeric sort of moment, and the audience and the, and the performers all become one. Welcome to the first series of 180 Grams, our debut album, if you will. Like Liam said, this is the story of Run Home Slow, a body of work that, like all great pieces of art, sounds natural and effortless. In this six-part series, we're going deep into the Teskey Brothers' difficult and acclaimed second record. Please prepare yourself for the events leading up to recording Run Home Slow here in episode one. First, though, we need an origin story. story, story, story. Let me- The story of Run Home Slow starts at St Andrew's Pub, at least an hour northeast of Melbourne City, following the Yarra River until Warrandyte, and adjacent to Victoria's Vine-rich Yarra Valley further east. It's 2005, Helen Stamkowski is running the pub with her husband when the phone rings.
5: Their mother rang the pub,
6: spoke to my husband, and went, listen, I've got these kids, they're really good, please give them a try. It's Jenny. I was kind of their manager.
0: Josh and Sam's mother.
6: And because they were only 15, 16, we couldn't have them at night time. It was like, we were actually not meant to have them play at all. to illegal. <laughs> I think pretty
7: sure Jenny came to the first few gigs. I'd send out a group email to all our friends and people who'd be interested when they were playing at St Andrews.
6: And then once we sort of got to know them, we went, look, if you've got other things to do, just leave them here. We'll look after them, type of thing. And they used to do... um the Saturday afternoon gig, which was 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock because of the St Andrews market. Mum used to drive them in, help them in with their gear and then drive off and leave them.
0: Soon enough, the brothers are a weekly fixture. More gigs come their way and the years begin to pass. Here's Josh.
1: For a good 10 years, we'd just been chugging along and, and um, you know, sharing the load a little bit between us and basically as gigs came up, we didn't say no to, to much at all. We always just whatever gig came our way. We we played some really weird gigs, and you know, we sort of get there was a lot of you know, chopping and changing of different members coming
0: in and, and playing a gig, and we kind of basically just ran along like that. Liam, Josh, Sam, and Brendan all know each other as teenagers. Liam and Brendan have played in plenty of other bands before the four crystallise as the Tesky Brothers. Sam's built a recording studio in Warrandyte under a house on a hill with a tracking room and wooden deck. It's an analogue setup, tape machines, warm sounds, old school approach. Very few computer screens. The band starts recording songs that will eventually become their first album. On 19th of September 2016, they upload their track Pain and Misery to Triple J Unearthed in Australia. It's still there if you want to check it out. If you don't know Triple J Unearthed, it's an online place where any Australian artist can upload their music. It might get heard by a Triple J host, even played on the National Youth Broadcaster, but it also gets combed over by tastemakers. Marushka Cornelius, ANR manager at Ivy League Records, is one of those tastemakers.
8: You know, I like to take a little bit of time out every week, basically, to just check out new music that's been uploaded.
0: An ANR manager looks after artists and repertoire. They're the people at the label who find new bands, work closely with them, and hope everyone else hears what they hear. Going by the name, artwork and song titles on their Triple J on Earth page, Marushka figures the Teskey brothers are either a bad Mumford & Sons rip-off or something worth investigating. Through headphones at her office desk in Woolloomooloo, Sydney, Marushka hears pain and misery.
8: As soon as I clicked on, I actually could not believe that it was a real band. When I heard them... I thought oh my god if if I love the this so much um you know off the bat surely other people will love this too and mm. I just never had a doubt that it would cut through because um you know I always say you can't fake good in my gut I knew I mean and it's so rare that you feel that you know like certainty
0: Marushka finds Brendan's number on their website for band bookings.
8: Um, that phone call was very funny. Brendan was so lovely, but at that point, you know, the band hadn't really had much experience with the music industry at all and Brendan was not shy of telling me that and, you know, he let me know I was the first record label person they'd ever spoken to. Marushka, what does a record label even do? You know, what do they even do? So, I <laughs> had to kind of explain to him what my job was, and you know the kind of general structure of a record label, but at that point, they hadn't actually put out their their first record they'd recorded it. Brendan sent me you know a zip file with all of the music in it.
0: More calls are coming into Brendan's phone,
4: and then labels got interested. There was one that rang me in the middle of the night from New York and I was half asleep and saw a number come up that had like 20 digits. Oh, hey, am I speaking of Brandon? I was like...
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, Sam Teske has sent the track to community radio DJ Pierre Baroni. At the very end of his show, Soul Groove 66 on PBS FM, he plays it. And the phone and the text
9: sort of went berserk, like, you know, who's this? You know, because like, I played it right at the end of the show. Even Jesse, who did the, does the reggae show next, came in and said, who's, who's this? But I, I I like to say you know they're from that hot bit of soul North Warrandyte and um, when I introduced them and talking to Sam when the first before the first album and he told me that they'd bought Jimmy Barnes twenty four track old twenty four track when I so when I got the link to it I sent the link to Jimmy
0: I said this is recorded on your old twenty four track he got it going and it sounds pretty good doesn't it <laughs> yeah he, he loved it. Off their own bat, the quartet finished their first studio album, Half Mile Harvest, in late 2016. Then call local vinyl pressing plant Zenith and throw a launch party in Fitzroy, Melbourne.
3: My name is Liam. <laughs> My name is Liam Goff, and I'm from the Teskey Brothers band.
0: We just booked in a
3: gasometer first launch. It's pretty much the first ever gig we'd ever booked after 10 years of playing. Oh. Instead of people calling us and saying, hey, can you play our wedding? Can you come play this party? Can you come play this pub? We'd printed 250 vinyl, which was the minimum from Zenith, thinking, look, we we printed them for ourselves and we thought we'll just, you know, whatever, we'll just have them sitting on our shelves in our sheds, but we want to have this album on vinyl. Went into, you know, Triple R and places like that and actually gave some
1: records in and said, hey, you know, here you are, like, maybe have a play of this. And it really... Started from that.
0: With the success of the first album launch night at the Gasometer, 2017 is getting some momentum even before January's done. It's good, but it doesn't make a heap of sense for Brendan.
4: Everything about this band is like, I don't know, what the, like, I don't know if insular is the right word, but sheltered maybe, or like, it, you know, we grew up in the same town next door to each other. We've played music for this long. We've never had anything to do with the industry outside of just booking a gig and playing it. And then all of a sudden we've done this thing which has had a bit of success and then that's attracting attention from, you know, music industry types. Any proper label, I think, would look at it and be like, I don't understand how this worked. And I don't either, to be honest, because it was just such a slow burn. Al Parkinson
0: is a fan at the time.
10: Their name just started popping up everywhere.
0: Later on she'll be part of their management.
10: And I was like, what is going on? Like... The Teske Brothers, I'm just hearing them all the time, everywhere. And I went to their second album launch show, at The Gasso, when they first released Half Mile Harvest. You know, within one day of them playing one show, everyone was like, okay, we've got to go see the Teskey Brothers. I just had this feeling in my gut, which was like, finally, people are getting this. It wasn't just all of their friends.
0: Not just Melbourne either. Mariska's flown down from Sydney to be at the launch.
8: You could tell that they'd been a band for 10 years. They just sounded unbelievable, you know, as tight as they do now. How often do you get to see a band who's had 10 years to perfect their craft?
0: Around the same time someone else has pressed play on Half Mile Harvest, someone who was struck by their sound, someone who doesn't quite believe what they're hearing.
11: My first thought was, wow, what a voice, what a band, what a groove. Um, I bet they can't do it live.
0: Jeremy Furs, venue owner, industry quiet achiever, blues music aficionado, and just a moment. The Teskey Brothers self-made debut album, Half Mile Harvest, is out. And they're getting some interest from labels and someone who is about to change the life of the band. Melbourne's Inner North is a deep vein of the local live music scene. Northside Records is an early checkpoint on the 86 tram route running from the city to the suburbs. It'll drop you at some legendary music venues in Collingwood, Clifton Hill and Northcote. Northside's owner is Chris Gill, the guru of Gertrude Street. Right now we're knee-deep in the funk at Northside Records. The soul of Melbourne, established 2002, giving it to you. I mean, the hype was beginning and
4: they were doing a little residency up the road at... um,
0: Oh, some little place in Clifton Hill.
11: The bar was called Sun Velvet Morning and...
0: That's Jeremy Furs from a minute ago.
11: I booked the Teskey Brothers to play a month of Sundays, 6 to 8pm in an 80 capacity room.
0: $100 is the standard fee for an artist to play Sun Velvet Morning. Default manager at the time, Brendan, isn't so keen. And being completely candid about it, I didn't want to do it
4: um, because we'd just sold out gasometers and then we get this email being like... Do you want to play it some Velvet Morning? Which I had played at in other bands, but I was familiar with how big it was. And I was like, well, not to sound like a jerk, I'm just not really sure how this is going to work. And then also with the performance fee, you know, it's quite low. We've always been a very pragmatic working band. We've done it for 15 years. And, you know, we learned pretty quickly that it's like you have to value yourself.
0: They eventually agree on $300 for each gig.
11: They had more instruments and, and channels that, that we could even... Accommodate with our small little PA
0: Drummers often need a little more space But thankfully over the years Liam's progressively stripped his kit right back And I think it's meant for like One or two people with an acoustic
3: guitar After years of the four of us Playing a million wedding gigs, bar gigs And we'd all be sort of just like Tetris into a venue
11: They made it work and they made it sound incredible With literally no setup or sound check time It was just straight into it The bar filled up and everyone was nodding and smiling and grooving and I was just watching absolute magic before my eyes and there were people up the stairwell, out the front, in the alleyway down the side of the bar.
0: How was the second week?
11: Week two was just bonkers.
0: Marushka at Ivy League is back up in Sydney, still hot on the ban, as the Teskey brothers' hype is building around their $300 a gig residency. She defeats the tyranny of distance by sending some local spies.
8: Chris Mond, who is the COO of Mushroom, and Mondi went back, down to kind of check him out and I remembered speaking to him afterwards and he was saying that it was just crazy. It was absolutely rammed. He ran into, you know, randomly ran into another artist manager that we were working with at the time who had just been walking past and he just looked shell-shocked and he was like, I just had to come in, I had to see who this, who was singing, what this was.
0: Jeremy's watching this all happen, running the bar while punters spill out onto Queen's Parade.
11: Who are these four guys and what are they doing with their music that's connecting with people so deeply? There didn't seem to be management in place. So I just got chatting to them at week three, very clearly unbridled or uninfluenced by the industry at all. They didn't have a publicist. They didn't really know anyone at radio other than a few local community radio presenters, they didn't know anything anyone at labels, they didn't know any managers, they didn't know what how the streaming world worked. And so they basically had no no relationship with the industry at that point. It was just four guys making music and punters in the room enjoying it. It was the most pure thing I've seen. It could easily be led off in a direction that might not be true to what they want and what they're trying to do. Um and as a fan of blues, as a many many time attendee of blues fest and and regular visitor to the southern states of of, of North America, um, I felt like I understood the genre and I understood what the guys were doing, and I realised that this was a special thing that was not to be commercialised or or um, or influenced by commercial direction at all. Um, or by creative direction by anyone, it was just something that they that needed to be managed a bit bit better.
0: Sam Teske is there when Jeremy makes a suggestion,
2: like, "Hey, if um, you know, if uh, no one else is really coming to really manage you, you know, I'll probably take the job. But I'll, like, I'll, I'll do it if if you know, if you want." And I thought it was just as a passing sort of
0: comment. Sam, Brendan, Liam, and Josh, each with day jobs, are at breaking point. We went
2: from a band that was, you know saying yes to every gig that came our way, just whether
4: it was a swimming pool or um, some Velvet Morning with uh, Jeremy. You saw something in my face, which was just like this complete like shell of a man who couldn't deal with all
0: of the emails and the level it was getting to. Jeremy had been Unified Music Group's financial controller, a tour accountant and bar manager, but never a band manager, which Josh doesn't mind. And and we kind of liked that because it was all new to us as well and we liked that we all kind of
1: learnt together and grew together and it was new for him as well and he was just going to have his first go at
0: managing a band. And
11: They knew that they wanted to play music and they really enjoy playing music for a full room.
0: Jeremy sees a group so focused on the music they have no obvious ambition to take over the world and make a bunch of money.
11: Now, at the time I was w- watching them play to a full room of 80 people But in my mind, I was watching them play to a room of, you know, 800 people.
0: Part of his pitch is putting in place marketing, live booking teams and a business plan for the band.
11: All I want to do is pass it on to people around the world. There's nothing I would change about your show. There's nothing I would change about your set, your songs. They needed a strong marketing team and a strong live booking team and just a clever business plan but they did not need A&R to tell them you probably should push this towards the Fleetwood Mac sound pretty soon after the end of that residency chalked up an agreement and set sail. Open up to them the opportunity of finding an audience around the world in a way that could turn this beautiful music into a sustainable career for them financially so they could they could support themselves and support their families with this music
0: until now the finances are pretty loose and one of the first changes liam notices with management
3: so money wise we you know through the first 10 years of of playing together we'd play a wedding or a festival or a you know uh, the montmorency street fair we'd get paid money to play the gig, but we'd also, like, sell, you know, we'd we'd add a CD of some, you know, songs we'd shabbily record and we'd sell that for 10 bucks. You know, we'd split all the money and be try and be as democratic as possible. Um, and then we started making money from gigs, like when we released the uh, Half Mile Harvest at the Gasometer, we actually made money off our own gig and were selling records. And we're like, oh, cool.
0: You know, we made a few thousand dollars, like, we split it. This just in, Half Mile Harvest is still Zenith's highest selling vinyl of all time. And then the first thing, and
3: God bless him, Jeremy, our manager, when we when we signed the contract, was like, right, we should talk about wages because wages represents stability, basically, so that you can, if we get a lump of money, we might be like, oh, cool, I'm going to go buy a vintage drum set or a guitar, whatever, I might go buy a car. It's just a lot easier in the long term to have a wage. We'd never made that much money. Um, in our day jobs and stuff, being able to live within our means to be able to survive as musicians through this growing process. So going to a wage was amazing. And it also felt like this is now my day job. Even though we were still working day jobs, you know, as the wage went up, we could do less work. And it got to the point where there was not enough time. We were way too much to literally be out of work. When we were home, we needed to be either, you know, Working on the band or trying to hold our personal lives together, seeing family, eating, sleeping, washing our clothes, that sort of stuff.
0: Their star is rising. In 2017, the band get an agent booking gigs for them around Australia. By the end of the year, they'll play nearly 100 shows. Midway through 2017, they're playing the Corner Hotel in Melbourne. During setup, Jeremy sees the founder of Mushroom Records walk into the band room off Swan Street.
11: Michael Godinski came down to a, a sound check very early on at the Corner Hotel. The guys were supporting the band Busby Maru, and he walked in with his wife Susan, and they sat down and watched the sound check. The blues was something that he had been involved in, you know, since promoting bands through the sixties and seventies. So he said, "This is my this is my turf."
12: They had a very very good work ethic. They came from Warren Dot, which resonated with me because the band that put Mushroom Records on the map was Skyhooks, a unique band at the time when everyone was wearing blue jeans called Skyhooks. The main songwriter who wrote 95% of the material, Greg McAinch, lived in Warrandyte in the 70s, and this is before mobile phones, this is before emails, etc. And he used to love causing a drama. So when there was a drama, I used to have to drive out to Warren Warrandyte and find him on his family property somewhere. So in a weird way, that connection made me feel even stronger about the Teskies. I sent the stuff to Jimmy Barnes, who I've always regarded as having a much wider taste in music than people realise. And has always been a great A&R bounce off for me and he loved it and I I thought it could go either way with Jimmy so it made me even more excited. He was the guy that told me when I played him the Butch Fig garbage demos with Shirley Manson and that great iconic band that we had, he said Michael you don't know what you've got here so he just confirmed my thoughts the Ivy League people's thoughts, etc., about signing them.
8: Somehow someone at Triple M was there and fell in love with the band and they found themselves doing a, you know, live performance on Triple M, which essentially was probably their first national media anything, you know. They did a couple of songs and sure enough, pretty much straight away, they had their record Half Mile Harvest shoot straight up to number two on the iTunes chart. Um, mm. So this little band from Diet that no one had ever heard of um, was sitting pretty, you know, up with your Ed Sheerans and all your other big pop acts at the top of the charts.
11: Unique New York. I was very quick to encourage the band to take it slow in terms of label decisions. It took me a while to work out exactly what was going to be the best path for them label wise and that's because that's i think that's a natural process that every manager has to do is to spend time with an artist and 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 work out who they are and what they need and then and then translate that to to the industry and to a label and and see if there's a match
0: the buzz on the band is building big time and record companies are clamoring for their signature universal music invites them to lunch this story is delicious Here's Sam, then Liam, then Josh.
2: They took us out in mm-hmm. Sydney to a for a nine course meal and a really fancy restaurant, and we, I th- think we kind sort of had a little squiz at the bill of, at the end of that and realized, wow, that's, um, that's a lot of money. And if they can afford to spend close to twelve hundred dollars on on you know on a on a meal just just for lunch, you know, who what what artist is paying for that? You know, or what, like you know, essentially it's probably coming from Justin Bieber or something like that, but you know.
3: The thing I remember most is the flaming dessert that came out and I just remember sitting there going like, this is not us.
1: And then what I always really love about that because we literally went from a meeting with Universal with this very, you know, this very sort of nice meal at this restaurant, we thought, oh, this seems very expensive and uh, then went straight from there to a meeting with uh, Ivy League around the corner in their office and we all had a cup
0: of tea up in the kind of grungy-looking office that they've got up the top there. That's all good, but Marushka is noticing increased industry attention. It
8: really does vary um, what the band or the artist wants out of a working with a record label. You know, some artists want the biggest sum of money. Some artists want, you know, a lot of creative support. You know, a- and it was... A tricky situation for us because I guess we found ourselves from, you know, being the first and, uh, you know, at the time pretty much the only record label talking to them to basically every major record label um, wanting a piece of this band.
0: Translation, Ivy League think they'll be scooped by a major label. With all
1: these little different spanners in the works, someone else would call in and give us an offer on some different, you know, with the different labels around around the world and stuff. So we were kind of... We were, you know, we were thinking, okay, we're just going to go down this path now. And then someone else would sort of sweep in and say, oh, hey, how about this?
8: So it's been 12 months and I have said, well, you know, at that point I kind of just had said to my boss, look, I just don't know. I don't know if this is going to happen. You know, we haven't really heard back. Obviously everyone's trying to chase them. It's It was quite sad.
0: In June 2018, Jeremy begins typing an email to Marushka at Ivy League.
8: And then we get an email from Jeremy saying, all right, we're ready to talk about the record deal. And I screamed at the top of my lungs in my office. And, um, you know, when that process started, the, the, the deal process and the negotiation, I said to my boss, if we sign this band... I'm going to cry. Like, I'm actually going to cry. And I remember the day that we, you know, got the signed, fully executed agreement back. I, sure enough, came the tears of joy. (laughs) It's like, this is the longest courting process of all time.
0: Ivy League and the other Australian labels aren't the only ones aware of the band. News of the rock and soul group from Warrandyte reach a handful of people in Europe.
6: Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Danny Roberts, and I
0: worked at Decca Records. He gets a hot tip shortly after the band plays Pain and Misery on Australian radio station Triple H. Danny.
6: And I remember the day that I I actually stumbled across the Teskey Brothers, and it was um a a colleague of mine who works in the music business in London. A publisher uh, called Steve Harris just sent me a very mysterious link. Um, I think it was about sort of August, uh, July, August, two thousand and seventeen. Just saying, have you come across this? And it was it was a live video of the Teskey Brothers performing um, the track "Pain and Misery," and it looked like there was potentially just one label involved, and that was a label, of course, um, Ivy League. I reached out; I, I, I had a response from J- Jeremy, the manager, quite quickly sort of saying, you know, this is pretty good timing, actually, um, because we're planning on heading over to Europe um, to to kind of play a few shows in the next few months. So it was so obvious that there were things happening in Australia, that it was already bubbling away. I was looking to sign the band for the world, excluding Australia. I then heard about a, a young chap called Holger Christoph, who was basically the equivalent to me, but in Germany. So he was... He was flying the Teske Brothers' flag high in Germany. A super fan of the Teske Brothers. Sure.
5: Hallo, My Name is Holger Christoph und ihr hört den 180 Grams Podcast. And I'm responsible for the digital business here in uh, Central Europe for universal music. But first of all, I'm, I'm just a music fan. I like guitars and, 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 and warm sound, preferably analog recordings, basically I like new music, which sounds old. In 2012, I started a a playlist brand called Songpicker on on Spotify and other streaming services and social media. I I looked it up, actually. it, It was on August 1st, 2017, and I got an email from Jeremy, the manager of the band. Um, the email read, hey, Holger, I'm, I'm the Teskey Brothers manager. Just a quick email to say thanks for adding pain and misery to your playlists. And that, that was it.
6: And I contacted many colleagues over, over the pond, most of the sort of frontline labels at Universal, and said, look, guys, we've got this band or we've come across this band, uh, the Teskey Brothers. They seem very keen on signing to us here in the UK and for Europe but they want to find a partner early on in America. Could I find anyone to team up with me? No, I couldn't. I tried for months. I went out to New York. I went out to LA. I spoke to everybody I knew. And no one no one put their hand up. And that was when I phoned my mate Daniel Glass.
1: Identify myself and you're lis- and you're listening to 180 grams? Okay, wait, hold on. Hi, this is Daniel Glass, president and founder of Glass Note Records and Music. And you're listening to me on 180 grams. Nice. I couldn't grasp the the, the combination of the sound, the image, and I knew I had a trip planned to Australia, so it was very fortuitous, everything coming together.
0: Daniel Glass is kind of a big deal. He's an American record company executive who helped build the careers of Billy Idol and Sinead O'Connor. Right up to Phoenix, Temper Trap, flight facilities, and churches. But Daniel is new to Liam.
3: Um, well, I didn't know who he was really. Um, apparently, he'd been in Australia doing stuff for um, one of his bands, and he was in a car being transported somewhere. And our Pain and Misery came on um, the radio, and he was like, Oh, wow, who's this? You know, and uh, shazammed it or something, and then somehow got onto Jeremy, our manager. By talking about, with him about what artists he'd worked with, um, like Childish Gambino and things like that, that his roster was very varied. And it didn't matter what genre of music you were making, as long as it was good quality, then he seemed to be
0: see value in that. In the UK, Denny Roberts has a moment similar to when Marushka finally clinched the deal.
6: To cut a long story short, um, we ended up doing a very, very complicated deal. And that took 12 months. Let's get this clear, signing the Teskey Brothers, I've signed many acts in my career, but signing the Teskey Brothers was um, without a doubt the the, the proudest moment of my career, Um, partly due to the fact that it took so long and it took so much work and so many conversations.
0: The industry vibe on the band has gone from a steady buzz to a deafening din. label wise they have a unique and complicated deal across Europe, the US, Australia and the rest of the world, coupled with fresh booking agents around the globe. Then the expectations arrive. Danny Roberts.
6: The difficult second album, blimey. It, yeah, it was. It, I wouldn't say worrying, but uh, I was doing a lot of thinking about it. Um, I had obviously been living with Half Mile Harvest for <laughs> about a year and a half by the time the deal was done. And um, there, there were a lot of questions going through my head um, wh- wh- when we did the deal. Um the The, the first question was, Where now? Where, where do we go with this? Because you can't just go and make the same record again. You know, this, this band, they've got to evolve. They've got to, um, their sound has to change or go in a slightly different direction. Or at least I thought it must. So there was a part of me that thought we're going to have to, we're going to have to be bold with the production.
3: I think we're all feeling a bit more pressure because Everyone in industry, all the, the documentaries we've watched, um, talk about how a second album is kind of make or break.
0: Danny wants the Teskies to grow, otherwise they may paint themselves into a corner making Half Mile Harvest 2.
6: There was a part of me that thought Half Mile Harvest was so sort of wonderfully f- throwback in in the best possible way, and and there was a part of me that worried that thought maybe, you know, maybe we can't do that again. Maybe we've got to try and add some more modern elements to the production. I was then wondering where we were going to make the record. Were we going to move them out of their comfort zone? Were we going to take them to America? Were we going to bring them over to the UK? And of course that depended on who was going to make the record.
0: He means the producer, which was Brendan on the first album, and he's signed on to do the second one at the moment. Pre-production is slowly happening in between all the other things they've recently committed to.
10: Nice, gotcha. Al Parkinson. Four of them are very different and they write quite different songs. So the pre-production process of of Run Home Slow was good, but it was also really stressful for them because they had a few other things going on.
0: They're also making a soundtrack to an Australian film called Palm Beach and they'd also been asked to re-record Pain and Misery with altered lyrics for a paint commercial, which became the song Forever You and Me. Have a quick listen. It
12: could be forever...
0: When something's special, you want to protect it, Cabot's makes it last. Mm, makes me want to oil the deck. Bit by bit, they're getting the demos together among ads, gigs, soundtracks and life.
11: It was probably over the, the course of the next six months that they knew they were working towards an album and although they were also busy with some touring, there were gaps where... They either got together as a group or even individuals had put down some ideas, some iPhone recordings, things like that. So it was coming together slowly in the sense that there was a song list forming. They decided to try and amount a, a list of ideally 40 songs where they could then pick the best 10. Uh, and that would form the album. I think Sam, in particular, writes a lot while he's on the road. And then things would pop up on Dropbox, and I just didn't even know when they'd been done. They were just in there. And I remember hearing the song Rain for the first time, I would guess, about March 2018. And it was an early demo of Rain that I just I sent a message to my assistant, Al Parkinson, and, and I said... Um, I just posted a link to the song and I just on Dropbox and I just said this this thing is gonna break the internet. Still to this day, I feel like that—that that for me is—is is just an absolutely stunning and and such a highlight of the of the record. And I just knew it was going to be that from the from the first time I heard it.
8: Half my harvest was recorded and produced and engineered by the band. So when we got these demos back. It was the general consensus that we could very easily have just put out the demos because they sounded like they were done.
0: The sound engineer and mentor
7: now Anzai
0: is a little worried.
7: I uh, start recording now. Yep. <clears throat> I knew him, Sam Teske, more than ten years. Not as a Teskey Brothers guitarist, but as a young guy who built his own home studio in Warrandyte.
0: The band's touring the world, chatting to famous producers, who are getting in their ears. I'll do your next record. I'll do your next record. I'll do your next
7: record. My warning to them and the manager Jeremy was: Do not give a free hand to any famous producers, because as long as I can see is you suddenly got famous because your sound is so unique in 21st century, because you are doing everything like as if you were in the 60s. Whoever you want to go with, you have to keep the basic track recording in your studio with Summer's engineer using only tape machine, like you did in the first album. If you don't do that, you may suddenly change your sound and your fan will not follow you anymore.
0: Reminder, Brendan is still signed on to be the producer like the first album.
4: I was very aware that the analogue studio thing was a big part of the narrative which was kind of cool but then I started to see that that was perhaps a dangerous trap to fall into because it's like yeah, I mean we use this old school equipment but that's not like the songs are the focus. Like for me then there was more thinking about the production side of things and how to how to not get into that pigeonhole of just another throwback band that's recording to tape and you know and that's all it is well it's like yeah if it ain't broke don't fix it and i was also like for my career personally it's like well if i produce this album and it does well then it's that's a huge step up for me personally it's not like an engineer where it's like your job is you you know you set up the technical side of things and you your aesthetic sonically is kind of what comes through and your knowledge and it's it's a very skill set thing whereas producer can it's just such a like it's a varied role and it can be yeah so sometimes you you know sometimes you can feel like what is a it like what did they do what did they bring to this i uh, yeah i was keen to do that and was doing it and doing most like all the organization and getting session players and Sort of starting to realize that I was perhaps had taken too much on my plate because this band is notoriously the worst at doing anything in a timely fashion.
3: <laughs> but then, yeah, we, we were told by labels or sort of a bit of pressure to they wanted us to work with someone else, which was in a way scary because we didn't know who we'd end up with
1: some of these just big shot producers that just felt like we were just immediately off the bat, which like, not a chance, you know? Like, you know, so, you know, some of the stuff they're talking about, we just go, which is totally fine, and that's the way they roll, and that's cool, but it's just not how, you know, and it's definitely not going to work with us. And even just saying stuff along the lines of like, you know, we're going to make it a bit more, bit more mainstream, a bit more kind of, you know, really, you know, we'll bulk it up a bit with this, and, you know.
0: Enter charismatic Englishman Paul Butler.
9: Yeah, I forgot about that.
0: Born in the Isle of Wight. Living on the U.S. West Coast, Mercury Prize nominee with his band The Bees, and producer for Andrew Bird, Nick Waterhouse, and Michael Kiwanaka. So when we chatted to Paul,
1: you know, so Brendan had chatted to Paul a little bit before we had chatted to him, and he said, I I really like this guy, you know, let's all get on a group call with him. And Paul's kind of like, you know, the moment we just gelled with the moment we're chatting to him on the phone, you know, he's got this very calming, relaxing sort of voice, and you know he'd worked in analog studios all you know all through the eighties and um and well, I don't know how old he is actually maybe it was the seventies and eighties don't quote me on that sorry Paul but uh <laughs> and uh and um and so he'd work with tape a lot and was really keen to you know, work that way he also we really loved like listening to the records that that he'd produced like Michael Kiyonaka's, um Home I think it's called. And then also just the fact that he was happy to jump on a plane and come out to little old Warrandite here and and stay for three weeks with us and just kind of smash out a record, you know. So for me, I was like, he's going to, he's going to get it. He's going to
4: know what I've been going through. And he's going to, first of all, for me, I'm going to have a mentor because he'll know the challenges of producing a band
9: that you're in. There's a lot of bands out there all trying, trying to, you know, find a producer. Ultimately, so a band, they get to a certain point on their own and then they just need someone else to blame. And then they start looking around because, you know, it's difficult as a band, especially a band like the Teske's that they've been together for ages and they want to push it to the next level. At this
0: point, Paul's life is in happy disarray.
9: Honestly, life was crazy at that point. So the idea of actually going to Australia for some work it's kind of nice. Going through a divorce, just had a baby. First child, yeah. Seven months old. It was, yeah, it was a lot. Uh, so, yeah, it was actually kind of a break just to go and uh, sit in a uh, funky accommodation in Warrandyte in this stinky studio.
0: <laughs> On the next episode, in a studio built underneath a share house somewhere in Warrandyte, the band get together and start recording. As
4: soon as he got there, Hey mate, I'm Paul. Hey, I'm Brendan. And, uh, you know, we sit down and just bang, straight into
10: it. They didn't know what the horn parts were really going to sound like. They didn't know what the strings were going to be doing. They didn't know what the BVs were going to be doing.
11: I already sensed that there was, they weren't at their best.
0: The psychosis hadn't even started by that point. Happy days. This is 180 Grams, one of six, I know you're loving it, about the recording of the second studio album, Run Home Slow, by, of course, the Teskey Brothers. More information is always available in the episode notes. Uh, spoiler alert, the next episode gets spicy. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where we have produced this show. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging for they hold the memories and cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples within the Kulin Nation. We wish to celebrate the rich history of Indigenous storytelling and hope to uphold this as testament to their eternal influence. 180 Grams is brought to you by The Mushroom Group and hosted by me, Mikey Carl. Executive producer is Matt Kodinsky of The Mushroom Group. Thanks to the following people who worked on this episode, Courtney Carthy, Tom Cannellan, Lucas Setiardi, Laura McCulley, Dan Baker, Loz Grice, Mariska Cornelius, Mushroom Creative House. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review in the app or tell a friend about the show. So why not?